a tiny insect that can present big health issues. The main ticks we are concerned about in terms of human disease are the black-legged ticks. Most people in Wisconsin call them the deer ticks. And the potential for infection in our state is considerable. There are about 14 high-incidence states. We're in that. So Wisconsin is actually a hot spot for Lyme disease and has some of the worst densities that we've seen. Leading researchers to seek answers. As a scientist and working closely with my clinician colleagues, all of us are very concerned about the impact it has on people. It's all about Lyme disease. Inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Bellmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter's Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Enjoying the great outdoors is perhaps the single greatest pleasure of spring and summer in Wisconsin. But depending on where we spend time outdoors, we're potentially at risk for contracting the illness known as Lyme disease. What is Lyme disease? How do we get it? Better yet, how can we avoid getting it? To learn about Lyme disease, we first got expert insight from Dr. Susan Paskowitz, Professor and Chair, Department of Entomology, and Director of the Upper Midwestern Center of Excellence for Vector-Borne Disease at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Paskowitz begins by sharing a little history about Lyme disease. We know Lyme disease has been around in the U.S. for a long time, probably for at least 60,000 years, but it really wasn't identified as a problem in humans until the 1970s. Where does the name Lyme disease come from? The name comes from the discovery, which was in Lyme, Connecticut, a couple of mothers in the community started keeping records about what they were seeing and then eventually took their notes to the State Department of Health. And then the researchers came in, identified the problem, and gave it the name of Lyme disease. And there's an early Wisconsin connection as well. Here in Wisconsin, we probably had the very first clinical case that was ever described and put in the literature. That was in 1969. That was a grouse hunter, actually, up in Taylor County. But they didn't call it Lyme. They just described symptoms that were really clearly the infection. It was soon discovered that these illnesses were caused by a pathogen carried in ticks. But where are these insects located? In Wisconsin, the tick is most associated with forested environments. Really any kind of area where you've got a lot of trees and a canopy and a good shaded humid environment, that's where these ticks really thrive. What about across the U.S.? Are ticks everywhere? The kind of ticks that transmit Lyme disease are not. They are really focused in the East Coast, 
here in the upper Midwest, in particular Wisconsin, but beginning to spill over now into some of the states around us. And then a bit of a gap when you get into the western United States, but ticks that transmit Lyme aren't actually found everywhere. How does Wisconsin's tick population compare with other areas nationally? Wisconsin is actually a hot spot for Lyme disease, and so where we've done direct comparisons for the density of the abundance of those ticks, Wisconsin has some of the worst densities, you know, that we've seen. Granted, not throughout the entire state of Wisconsin. When you look across the entire state, when you get up into some of the wetter forests in northern Wisconsin, places like that, we definitely have some places in the state that have a great abundance of these ticks. So it really varies a lot. How many different varieties of ticks are there? Worldwide, 800 to 850 different species. In the U.S., we have about 90, and in Wisconsin, we have 15 different kinds of ticks, but most people are never going to see most of those because they are very tightly associated with the host that they get their blood meals from. So then, which ones do we need to be concerned about? The main ticks we are concerned about in terms of human disease are these black-legged ticks. Most people in Wisconsin call them the deer ticks. We have a couple of others that we will see feeding on people, the wood tick, also known as the American dog tick. Those are not associated with transmission of any disease agent. Can these same ticks carry other disease-causing pathogens as well? They do. They transmit at least seven different agents. So there are a number of these other pathogens that have made people in our state sick. How do these other diseases compare to Lyme disease? Because they're rarer, they're less of a concern. But some of these other pathogens tend to be quite serious if they're not diagnosed and treated early. Where do deer ticks get the pathogen that they then pass along to us? That is a direct connection to the ecology of these ticks, which are really not that interested in feeding on people. They will feed on people if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it's the wildlife that's the source of all these different pathogens back to the ticks. Exactly what wildlife are we talking about? For Lyme disease, mice are important in this cycle, and chipmunks are also potentially a really important host and able to infect the ticks just as the mice are. And we have a number of other small rodents that can also serve as the source of the infection. Wait, not deer? After all, we're talking about the deer tick here. You know, it's not the case. The deer are really good at feeding, especially the adult ticks and allowing the adult ticks then to produce the eggs. But they're not very good at infecting the ticks. The infections primarily are not coming from the deer at all. At what point in a tick's life cycle does it typically begin carrying the Lyme disease pathogen? If a tick passes from an egg as a larva, it's not infected. The larva then will feed on one of these small animals, potentially picking up the infection. And then when the larva molts to the nymph, now the nymph is still infected. So if you pick up a nymph on your person, when the nymph is feeding on you, that's when you can become infected. What percentage of deer ticks carry the Lyme disease pathogen? Dr. Paskowitz says that depends. If you're out in an area and you pick up a nymphal deer tick, it averages about 20%. So about one in every five would potentially be infected with the Lyme disease pathogen. But in adult deer ticks, that percentage is higher. Because they've actually had two chances as a larva and as a nymph to feed on a mouse. So the adult deer tick would be the higher risk, say 40 to 60% if you get an adult tick on you.
Still, she says it's better getting an adult tick on you versus a nymphal tick because... If you get an adult tick on you, you're a lot more likely to feel it, find it, and remove it than you are with the nymphal tick, which are very tiny. And so that's why we think that most of the transmission of these diseases is actually associated with the nymph. What time of year are we most likely to come into contact with ticks carrying Lyme disease? What we're talking about here is when is the peak of the nymphal activity season. And they start getting active usually in early June and peaking normally around the third week in June. And then they will continue to be active into the first week or two in July. And there's a peak season for the adult ticks in Wisconsin, too. The adult deer ticks tend to be most active around the second week in October. So if you're out hunting, for example, that would be a time where you could be exposed. And March and April would be another peak for those adult ticks to be active. Ticks are primarily in wooded areas. However, even if you live near a wooded area... We've been doing some work looking in the backyards of people who have grassy yards that might abut up to a nice wooded patch. And what we're finding is that we do get spillover into the yards and even right up against the foundation of homes. So you do also have to be conscious of this potential risk. Okay, let's say we do come into contact with deer ticks. Where are they most likely to attach themselves to our body? What we tend to see is especially the adults will crawl up towards your head, behind your ears, or on your neck. Also, they can be in your armpits. I even hear people tell me that the belly button is a place where very frequently they're finding ticks. So, you know, they can be anywhere, but those are places that we should be careful to check. Feeling a little itchy now? Yeah, me too. But buckle in, because when a deer tick attaches itself to us, this is what it's doing. The first thing that it's doing is inserting its mouth parts down into your skin, and then it begins to secrete. And it's secreting things that makes like a little cement cone that helps to wedge the mouth parts in and makes it a lot harder to remove. Oh, but it gets better. Because it also starts to secrete chemicals that suppress immune response. There's a ticket feeding for four days up to as much as a week, which is quite different from a mosquito, which will get a complete meal within just a few minutes. A tick takes a long time to get all of the blood that it wants. How long does a tick need to be attached to pass along the pathogen? When the tick gets infected, the Lyme disease spirochete is still in its gut and it actually needs to move into the salivary glands before it can be introduced into the person. And it's taking anywhere from 24 to 48 hours before the transmission is occurring. So get the ticks off as fast as you can. The quicker you remove them, the lower the chance it will have had the time to transmit the infection to you. Speaking of removing a tick, what's the best way to do that? The recommended procedure is to take a pair of tweezers, put them down close to where the mouth parts are in the skin, and then exert backward pressure to get the tick to release and come out. But just recently, my tick team has been trying something a bit different where they put the tweezers right at the insertion point, and then they do a little twirling kind of a motion, and it does seem like it's a promising approach for removal. By the way, some of those home remedies you may have heard of, yeah, no. What we really recommend you don't do is light the match and then you blow it out and touch the hot match head to the tick. Don't do that. And don't cover them with Vaseline. Don't cover them with anything, really. 
We'll learn about clinical presentations of Lyme disease later, but Dr. Paskowitz shares some symptoms to watch for. The primary symptom would be the bullseye rash right around the side of the tick bite. That's usually a pretty large rash. So if you're seeing this larger rash and it's continuing to expand, then that could be Lyme disease-associated rash. And what you're seeing is actually the spirochete moving out through your skin and your skin responding with that reddening. But of course, not everybody gets the bullseye rash. There's another common symptom. You also could be watching for signs of summer flu. People don't usually get the real flu in the summer. So if you have fever and muscle aches, fatigue, and you're just not feeling well, you might consider going and talking to your doctor about the potential for tick exposure. That would definitely send me to my doctor in the summer for a treatment. Approximately how many cases of Lyme disease are diagnosed in Wisconsin each year? Our Department of Health Services collects case reports and on their website gets usually somewhere between 2,500 to 4,000. Now, the Centers for Disease Control is using some different systems of reporting. It's probably 10 times that. So if we think we have 3,000 cases, it's a lot more likely to be 30,000 cases each year. How does this compare nationally? There are about 14 high-incidence states. We're in that, and I think for us it's about 25 cases per 1,000 people each year. I think Maine in particular, maybe over 100 cases per 1,000 citizens. So we're definitely high for the upper Midwest, but we're not the highest in the entire United States. But the rate of infection and where cases occur in Wisconsin have been increasing. Our problem started in the northwestern part of the state. But we have seen the ticks really move down the whole western corridor, then into the central part of the state. And then just in the last 10 to 15 years, we've now seen them moving into the eastern and the southernmost parts of the state. Even little forests within Milwaukee or here in, in Madison, we find those ticks pretty much every place we look now. Can't we just eradicate the tick varieties carrying Lyme disease? Not so simple. In Wisconsin, think about just how much forested area there is. You have to use insecticides. I don't think anybody would really be enthusiastic at all about spraying all of the locations within those forests where these ticks exist. So it would be impossible, I think, to get rid of them using the current methodologies that we have. While we can't eliminate ticks, Dr. Paskowitz and her tick team developed a tool to better educate us about Lyme disease. It's called the Tick App. The Tick App is a research tool we developed as a way to recruit citizen scientists to help us understand more about people's risk of exposure and what they're doing when they're exposed so that we can just be better at our educational practices. The app has a lot of cool features, including a feature called Report a Tick. If you do find a tick on yourself, you can take a picture of the tick, send it to us, and within 24 hours, we'll send you back our best guess as to what the tick is. And if it's a good picture, we can even give you an estimate for how long the tick has been attached, which would be important in terms of your risk of actually getting infected with Lyme disease. The Tick app is free, and it's widely available. You can go and look at our website. It's just called the TickApp.org. You can also download it either through the Apple Store or the Google Play for Android devices. We'll post a link to this and other information on Lyme disease on our CTSI website, along with the podcast of this show. Finally, Dr. Paskowitz says, be educated about ticks and Lyme disease.
but don't be afraid of them. No, of course not. I just think people should stay vigilant. Continue to do everything you can to prevent you from being one of those statistics for our state. Be aware of the potential risk and take the precautions that you need to protect yourself and your family. Next, we go from Madison to Milwaukee in learning more about Lyme disease research from Dr. Robert Lockhead, Assistant Professor, Department of Microbiology and Immunology, and head of the Lockhead Lab at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Lockhead begins by first identifying the specific bacteria which causes Lyme disease. Lyme disease is an infection from a tick-borne spirochetal pathogen called Borrelia burgdorferi. So it's a bacterial infection you get if you are bit by a tick that's infected with this bacteria. This bacteria is the most common vector-borne disease in the United States, and Wisconsin is one of the hot spots. What are the specific characteristics of this bacteria making it harmful to humans? This bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi, is a spirochete, meaning it's kind of a spiral shape. And that's due to its two membranes, an inner membrane and an outer membrane. And between those two membranes are flagella, or these whip-like structures that help them swim through very dense connective tissue, like burrowing through skin. Dr. Lockhead leads the Lockhead Lab at MCW. He shares his lab's main focus in studying Lyme disease. Our lab focuses on understanding the mechanisms of pathogenesis of Lyme arthritis. And we're really interested in it from a couple of different perspectives. One, what causes it? Two, why does it persist in some people even after the infection itself is cleared? And three, how does Lyme disease trigger autoimmune responses in some patients? What factors have been identified through research contributing to the variability in Lyme disease? There are a number of host factors. Genetics play a role in the type of Lyme disease we get, how severe it is, whether we show symptoms at all, whether we're asymptomatic. There are genetic mutations common in certain populations that result in people developing more severe inflammation, refractory to antibiotic therapy. There are other factors contributing to the variability in severity. There are spirochetal factors, as not all of the bacteria are the same, and some strains of Borrelia burgdorferi are more arthritogenic. So if you happen to be infected by one that's more arthritogenic, you're more likely to get Lyme arthritis. There are some that tend to cause neurological complications. So neuroborreliosis is more common if you're infected with other types of Borrelia. And a recent discovery colleague Brandon Jutras and I recently published a study showing that while the bacteria are replicating, they actually shed their cell wall components, very rigid structures called peptidoglycan. Usually bacteria, as they replicate, recycle these fragments. Well, Borrelia is different. They lack the machinery to do so. Instead, they shed it out into their environment and make more peptidoglycan as they're replicating. This can be problematic for an infected person. Because this peptidoglycan is quite inflammatory. And so we have shown in mice, peptidoglycan in and of itself is arthritogenic. Beyond that, their research discovered more. We can detect peptidoglycan in people with Lyme arthritis up to several years after they've been effectively treated with antibiotic therapy. These people have no evidence of active infection anymore, but we can still detect material in their joint fluid, indicating that it's very resistant to degradation. 
And while additional research is needed, we think this may be an important component of symptoms that persist even after the bacteria are gone. This bacterial debris can actually stick around a lot longer than the bacteria themselves. How does Dr. Lockhead characterize the overall level of knowledge we have about Lyme disease? Well, we know quite a bit. We understand a lot about its life cycle, how it's transmitted, what it does in the tick, what it does in the animal host. We know how to treat the infection quite well. There are some important gaps, however. Gaps creating challenges in Lyme disease research. Gaps the Lockhead Lab hopes to narrow and close in the future. What about vaccines? Have any been developed to prevent people from getting Lyme disease? The answer is yes. Vaccines that were developed in the 1990s that were modestly effective at preventing someone from getting Lyme disease. Unfortunately, there was a lot of mistrust surrounding vaccinations at the time. The Lyme disease vaccine got caught up in this anti-vaccine movement and the manufacturer just stopped producing the vaccine. However, some good news on the vaccine front. There are new vaccine candidates in clinical trials right now. It is hoped before too long people can get a vaccine to protect them against Lyme disease. That's what the gold standard is, find ways to prevent it from occurring at all. Next, let's learn about clinical presentations of Lyme disease. Fortunately, Dr. Lockhead did a clinical postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical School, and he shares his expertise with us. He says clinical features are typically divided up into three stages, the first being early localized Lyme disease. Lyme disease is caused by this bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi. Upon feeding, this bacteria migrates out of the beard tick and into your skin. During the first few days after you're infected, we call that the early localized disease manifestations, and that's most commonly associated with the spreading bullseye rash, seeing about 70% of people. The rash is commonly accompanied by other symptoms. Mild flu-like symptoms, headache, mild fever, joint pain, that lasts for anywhere from a few days to a week or so. The second stage of presentation is the early disseminated stage of the disease. And this occurs as the disease itself progresses and the bacteria migrates from the site of the infection to other parts of your body. Resulting in symptoms similar to the early localized stage, plus some additional symptoms. In addition, you can have neurologic symptoms associated with Lyme disease, such as facial palsy. You can get shooting nerve pain, unfortunately, that can be quite painful. One can develop Lyme carditis, where the spirochete gets into the heart tissue and can cause some very life-threatening heart problems. And this typically requires hospitalization and close monitoring. But it's only 1 or 2% of cases, quite rare. But while symptoms of early stage Lyme disease vary, the treatment is quite simple and effective. Fortunately, Lyme disease is easily treated with antibiotics, typically a 10 to 14 day regimen if you catch it early. For some of these more serious conditions, you may need longer courses of antibiotics, three or four weeks. That kind of depends on the severity of the disease. But the earlier you're treated, the better your outcome. The third stage of presentation is late-stage Lyme disease. Late-stage Lyme disease typically occurs several months after infection, and the most common late-stage disease manifestation is Lyme arthritis, which typically occurs about six months after you've been infected. 
As he told us earlier, Dr. Lockhead's lab focuses on research related to Lyme arthritis. Some people that are infected with Lyme disease develop autoimmune responses, a type of immune response to an infection that typically targets whatever is causing the disease. However, sometimes that immune response can be targeted to yourself. And we found that quite a significant number of people with Lyme disease also develop autoimmunity. So his lab uses Lyme disease as a model to study how the infection triggers autoimmune responses in some people, which is important because... If you develop an autoimmune response, then even when the bacteria itself is gone, your body can still be attacking yourself, and this could help to explain some symptoms that people experience even after the infection itself is gone. Where in the body does Lyme arthritis commonly affect people? It affects one or a few large joints, most commonly the knee. So a common manifestation of Lyme arthritis is one knee that gets the size of a large grapefruit. Typically, it's the only symptom someone experiences. It's just the arthritis. How commonly does Lyme arthritis occur in Lyme patients? The frequency of Lyme arthritis is based on epidemiological data from before we knew what caused Lyme disease. And according to that research, about 50 to 60% of untreated people will develop Lyme arthritis within 6 to 12 months of being infected by the tick. Once someone has Lyme arthritis, can it be successfully treated? Lyme arthritis is successfully treated. Antibiotics to clear the infection usually leads to resolution of the arthritis. In about 80% of the cases, that's sufficient. But there are cases where antibiotics are not enough. 10 to 20% of the people that are treated with antibiotics continue to have symptoms that may actually get worse after the infection itself is cleared. We call this post-infectious Lyme arthritis. It can be quite debilitating for people and can last up to several years. Fortunately, patients are very effectively treated with immunosuppressive drugs used for treating patients with autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis. The key is to get treatment as early as possible because... If you're treated early, typically you're not going to get any of these late-stage manifestations. How is Lyme disease diagnosed if you don't have physical signs, like the bullseye rash we've heard about? The diagnostic tests are based on immune response to the bacterial infection, so they measure antibodies that your body produces in response to the infection, and it's detecting those antibodies that's used to diagnose patients. However, it's quite difficult to directly detect the bacteria. It also takes several weeks for your body to mount an immune response. So there's a window where the tests are actually not very good. People will test negative while still being infected. After a month or so, the tests are very good. So if you've been infected for a long time, say someone with Lyme arthritis, the tests are nearly 100% accurate. It's early in the disease where diagnosis becomes more challenging. Even after successful diagnosis and treatment, can the Lyme disease infection remain in a patient's body? It's likely very rare to have persistent infection after that. However, that doesn't mean the Lyme disease symptoms necessarily go away once the infection is cleared. 10 to 20% of people that develop Lyme disease continue to exhibit symptoms that may last six months, a year, or even longer. And we call that post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome then can Lyme be considered a chronic disease? I don't like the term chronic Lyme disease. It implies that you are chronically infected, and that is extremely rare. However, that doesn't mean that people aren't chronically ill. 
That may be semantics to some, but I think it's important to distinguish the infection from the disease. Those two things aren't always directly linked. And so, the takeaway is... It's important to distinguish the infection from the disease. Someone may be harboring the bacteria and be completely asymptomatic. Also, the opposite may be true. Someone may be effectively treated and no longer harbor the bacteria, but may still have symptoms associated with Lyme disease. So decoupling the infection with the disease symptoms, you may cure one and not the other. It's important to understand the difference between those two things. If you want to learn more, our lab hosts a website, LymeMCW.org, and learn more about some of the research that we're doing in the Lockhead Lab. A lab committed to learning more about Lyme disease. As a scientist and working closely with my clinician colleagues, all of us are very concerned about Lyme disease and the impact it has on people. Our first and foremost objective is to find better ways of diagnosing and treating them. For those of you out there who are suffering from Lyme disease, don't give up. We're working our hardest, and thank you for your support that you give us. That's all the time we have for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Susan Paskowitz and Dr. Robert Lockhead. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.